page. Okay. We are on page 36. We were doing the third principle. The third principle is that God has no body, no power of a body, none of the functions of a body. And the idea of a body is not merely just the things that we can experience with our senses, but the fact that there are attributes of a thing which can change without changing its essence. So again, emotions would be bodily powers because our emotions change even though we still remain in the essence human. Which creates a problem because we had described God in bodily manners, right? In the, in the scripture, in Tanakh, as well as in the rabbinic writings. And we discussed, I believe we discussed the Rambam's approach that he says here. Maimonides' approach. Does anyone remember what that was? When the Torah says something about God walking, standing, loving. Oh, it's, it's like an analogy. It's an analogy. Yeah. Yeah. What's an analogy for? Well, then it's, not, then it's pointless to use an analogy you can't understand it. It's an analogy something we can understand. Maybe it's something we don't have other words for, but... Well, it brings it down to the level that you can understand. But, but, but what is being brought down? God's... God's godliness? No. Right. The way God has influence over us. So, God speaking would simply be a metaphoric way of describing how Moshe or some other prophet became aware of this knowledge. Right? Not, not through a process of learning or experience, but just God caused him directly to know in some kind of interesting way. Right? God getting angry would be a metaphor for punishing the wicked. Right? God loving would be a metaphor for protecting the Jewish people throughout history, things like that. Right? So it's really describing the effect God is having on us using bodily anthropomorphic language. So it would be incorrect to think it's actually describing God in any way. And if you take this principle all the way to the end, I don't know if I said this in class, did I speak about God not existing? No. No. So the Ramam actually takes this principle all the way to things. Is that really the problem is all of our language, if you really think about it, is bodily? So if you were to say something exists, if you think about what that means, you you think of it you think of it as opposed to non-existing. You think of it having some kind of defined presence, right? right? So the sentence like unicorns don't exist except in someone's imagination, right? We all know what the word exists there means, but God doesn't really fit in. God is not the kind of thing that you could touch or see. So if God is real, you wouldn't be able to touch or see him. So in what sense does he have existence the way we even use the word? And so what ends up being is that all language is really in some sense metaphoric and isn't really descriptive of God. It's just talking about um, the effect that God has on us. So when we say God exists, what we're really saying is that, well, could we exist without God? So in that sense, God exists. But if we think about what we mean by existence, it's not really, God doesn't have that kind of... I think therefore... No, it's a different idea. Sorry. Okay. And so what ends up happening is that, yes, all these things are talking about God, but they don't mean what we think they mean. Okay. Then I mentioned there was another approach in Jewish theology um, in Kabbalah, which takes a whole different um, angle on this. 
which is that rather than saying the words that are describing God don't really mean what we think they mean, they're really metaphoric descriptions of something else, rather they mean exactly what we think they mean, they're just not talking about God. So in this sense, it's not that when we say God loves us, love doesn't mean love, it's just that God doesn't mean God. The, love, the meaning of love stays more or less the same, it's just not that God is not doing the loving. Okay, so I'm now going to give you an introduction to Kabbalah. Kabbalah, um, Kabbalah often is a word that gets used for Jewish mysticism. Um, there's different reasons why. I'm specifically talking about the idea of the doctrine of the ten spheres, as it's called in academia. The idea that there are ten spheres. What are spheres? Those circles on that poster. No, those circles are actually circles. Those are not spheres. <laughs> no. Spheres? No. Planets. No. Worlds? No. That's a good answer. I like that answer. Okay. I'm going to be annoying for a moment. The translation of the word spheros is spheros. Unless you want to use a different pronunciation in Hebrew, which you could call them spherot. The individual is a sphera. So how do you say sphera in English? Spheros. Sphera. Why am I insisting on not translating them? There's no word in English. Now... Um, I'll use an example. Um, everyone is familiar with tefillin? Yeah. Okay. What's the English word for tefillin? Tefillin. No. Uh, well, actually, phylacteries is a word when they were embarrassed to use Hebrew words. That's an embarrassing word. Because phylactery, a phylactery is a kind of a mystical amulet that's supposed to have some kind of protective powers um, that usually contains parchments. And so tefillin are kind of like phylacteries in Greek culture. And so when they wanted to translate tefillin into a you know, respectable sounding word, they chose the word phylactery, but it's not really like A and B. Nobody knows what a phylactery is anyway. <laughs> so the word doesn't really mean tefillin, and if you know that the word is translation for tefillin, you probably just know what the word tefillin is anyway, so therefore the best English translation of the word tefillin is just to say tefillin, right? Sometimes there just isn't a word for that thing in that language, just carry the word over, right? That's why modern Hebrew has a lot of words. It just took the words from other languages and carried them over. Good? Okay. So instead of translating, I'm going to describe. Now, there are different views of the spheres. I'm going to give you the simplest version of the spheres that is easiest to understand because this is just to highlight the contrast between the Rambam's broad approach to the issue and the Kabbalists. But keep in mind, um, really think of these as two kind of... broad views and really there's a lot of subversions both in the kind of everything is a metaphor and it's not really God. Okay. Let us use the following um, analogy. I want to drink some water um, and I also want um, to write a book, and I also want um, to go visit my cousin somewhere else. Okay? So these are all of my desires, my will. Okay? That desire, that will, that intent, is that physical? And I mean this in the obvious sense, that a physical thing. 
So now here's the thing. If I desire to drink the cup of water, is the cup of water just going to like magically enter my mouth? No. If I desire to write a book, is the pen just going to pick itself up and just start writing? No. Um, if I desire to go meet my cousin, am I just going to magically be where my cousin is? No. So we see that my will is quite limited. It doesn't really achieve very much, does it? That make sense? Mm-hmm. Why is that? Why, can't my, why is my will insufficient to pick up this water? Right. In order to get the water to move, since the cup of water is physical, I need a physical thing that is going to be able to interact with it, right? The pen physical. I need a physical hand to interact with it, right? To change my physical education, I need to do something that can engage in physical movement, right? So it's my hands and legs that achieve those things, right? Okay. Under what situations does my hand pick up the water and bring it to my mouth to drink? Just automatically the hand does that or only when I desire it? When you desire. Okay. So this is interesting. My will can't get the water to move. My hand's needed for that. But my will does get my hand to move. Why is that? It's part of you. Okay. It's part of me. Now... If, God forbid, my hand were to be chopped off, as a, as a, as a being who has desires and experiences, right, as a person, am I less of a person because I'm missing my hand? No. no. If we take this a little bit further religiously, if, God forbid, a person dies and their soul departs from their body, are they less of a person because they're not inhabiting the body at all? No. They're not less of a person. They may be less present, but that's different, right? I can't see them. I can't interact with them, right? But wherever they are, whatever state of being they are, they're still the living be- a living being. In fact, maybe more profoundly. So this is weird. The hand is in one sense part of me, but in another sense, not part of me. It's part of me enough that it is directly responsive to my will, right? It's but, but it is not, but it's something that's also in some sense extraneous to me, right? The, the real me is the living soul, is the, the thing that desires and feels and wants and Somehow, when that soul is in the body, it's able to exert control over the body, and the body is responsive to the will of the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the body, and the soul experiences things through the body, but it's not really that the, the body is really part of the soul. It's, it's external. But it's not totally foreign. So I can't directly control the cup. I can't just magically be in a different place. I can't magically control the pen. But somehow I can magically control the body my soul inhabits. And then through that, I can interact with things. Okay? So we have here some defined some relationships. There is the soul to the body. There is the body to the external world. The soul to the external world. The soul cannot directly interact with the external world the body can directly interact with the external world. The external world is not responsive to the soul. The body is responsive to the soul. Inasmuch as the soul is in the body, the body is somehow part of the soul in some sense. But on the other hand, the body is something external to the soul. Make sense? Okay. So now, 
What is picking up the cup of water? My soul's desire or the hand? Both. Both, but in different senses. If I talk about the actual act of picking up the water, it's the hand, right? The body. But if I want to, under, if I, if I want to attribute it, it would be weird to say my hand picked up the water because that would kind of imply that my hand is operating autonomously. When it's not, the hand is just responding to my will. So I think of attribution, I attribute it to me, my soul, my desire. But when I describe the event, I think about the body. Okay, so you have to have that kind of split. Yeah. What about breathing or something as we learn like Whatever, you don't have to, uh, involuntary. Because, because this is an analogy to understand the spheres. This is not a real discussion about human beings. But well, like, could you, like, what would you say? For I breathing? wouldn't say anything. Okay, you don't, in, other words, in other words, it's very important whenever you bring up an analogy, that the analogy is being brought up to help understand something else. And so we are creating a simplified, idealized version of the understanding of the analogy to the handle for something else. Sure. Um, whenever we're the analogy, we tend to get sidetracked and like, let's talk about ourselves and our existence and our life. And, um, you ever noticed, I don't know, if you guys have a chassidus class? Mm-hmm. Yep. And sometimes like the human experience is used in an analogy from spiritual, some spiritual thing. Mm-hmm. Does this ever happen? And that becomes a very interesting discussion about the human experience. Um, and often doesn't all the way tie back to what the spiritual idea is supposed to explain. It's because we like ourselves. <laughs> We're interesting to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Okay, but I'm, yeah. Sure. Okay, so here's the thing. Oversimplified tremendously. There's God. And in the Kabbalistic view, God does not directly interact with the world. Because God is too transcendent. God is too beyond existence to interact with the world. Similar to the way the soul can't interact with the physical, physical world. So God so to speak, needs something that is more definitive and concrete to interact with the world. Now, he's not going to have those things interact on his behalf. Mm-hmm. Right? That would be kind of idolatrous. You're going to see we're going to get to, to um, principle five. Mm-hmm. So those things that, that, that God uses to interact with the world are called his spheros. And like the world, they are concrete. Uh, I don't necessarily mean they're physical in the tangible sense, but you know, they're, they're, they're specific things. They can undergo change. They interact with created reality. Um, and so when the righteous are being rewarded, the sphera of chesed is being used. Now, why am I not translating the word chesed? There's no there is actually. The problem is that when I translate it, you're going to think that it means the same thing. The reason why the sphere of chesed is called chesed is because the sphere of chesed does nice things. So we call it the sphere of chesed, which means kindness. But it is not kindness. It's something else. It's something that does kindness. Okay. But God uses the sphere of chesed to reward. And then he uses the, the other sphere of gevura, which is usually translated as might, to punish the wicked. I'm oversimplifying. Does that mean there's two different parts of God? No. That would be like I use my... I use my hand to pick up the cup and I use my legs to walk. Right? But it's one soul with its desires that's, that's causing everything. Now here's the important thing. Just like my hand doesn't on its own pick up the water, my hand doesn't on its own write books, and my legs don't on their own just decide to take me somewhere, right? They are responsive to the will of my soul. So too the spheres don't on their own do anything. They are responsive to, for lack of words, the will of God. Does God have to do anything to get the spheros to function? Or it's simply enough that he wills that the righteous be rewarded and the wicked be punished, and then the spheros just 
carry that out. Much the same way you just decide you want to be somewhere else and your legs take you there. You want to pick something up and your hand does it. So the spirits would be like the human limb. The spirits would be like the human limb and God would be like the... The soul, the will of the soul. That's... So when we attribute anything that's happening, any, any willful action in your body, we don't attribute it to the body, we attribute it to the mind, the, mind, the, soul. the soul, right? But in the other hand, we're describing the event. We're not describing what's happening to the soul, we're describing what's happening to the body. So when it says God came down on Mount Sinai, how would the Kabbalists understand that? Did God come down? A sphere came down. But why did that sphere come down? Right, it's, mani- it's manifesting, it's carrying out God's will. And it's carrying out God's will in this automatic and innate way, the way you're, similar to the way your limbs carry out your will. Now, if God were to have to command the spirit to do it, that would be something else, because then the spirit would have some degree of autonomy. Right? I don't command my limbs to do things. I just desire and they, they function, unless something's really weird with you. But other people, you have to issue instructions. So... People, angels, they're not spirits. Why? Because if God wants to get them to do something, what does he have to do? We'd have to communicate with them, right? Or we'd have to push them around using the spirits. So whenever we, so when God speaks to Moshe, what is doing the talking? The spheros. The spheros. But we wouldn't say the sphere is talking. We would say that my mouth is talking. It's a weird way to, we know that. Rabbi Coffin's mouth is talking. <laughs> you don't say that. Rabbi Coffin's talking, we attribute it to me even though the event is occurring in the limb. Mm-hmm. This is the Kabbalistic view. So now can you have a very dynamic discussion of what God is doing and not doing and how he's changing and blah, blah, blah? Sure. But it's just not ta- describing God actually doing or changing those things as the events occurring within God. The events are occurring as a result of God's will. And God is kind of remaining transcended aloof from the whole thing. So when you do a mitzvah, does God get happy? No, God can't get happy. Well, the Kabbalists would say, sure, sure God gets happy. Because let's think about this. What is, it, what, is it, what is joy? Joy? Yeah, what is joy? Joy is when um, your body is in such a state that it's very open and conducive to the better parts of yourself coming through, right? Mm-hmm. It, wouldn't that be an accurate description of joy? Mm-hmm. And um, what would it be to be um, saddened or, or frustrated or angry? Then what happens? Conducive to the negative parts of you. Yeah, well, I, well, let's assume there's only positive parts of you for argument's sake. You'll see why in a second. Then what is that doing? It's kind of constricting everything. Think about it. When you are sad or angry or frustrated, do you feel more constricted? Yes. Are you more myopic in how you view things? Are you more rash to react? The, the more authentic version of yourself doesn't seem to come through. Mm. So what happens if the spheres are very constricted and don't allow the goodness of God to come through? Then you could say God is sad or angry. And what if the spheres are open and expansive and allow the goodness of God to be brought into the world? Then you could say he is happy. But just like the change is occurring in your bodily system, it's not like an existential change of your being. So they would say, I mean, yeah. So they would say, in fact, yeah. God doesn't have a body. The change is occurring in the spheres. But if for that matter, when you think about a pe- per- person, most of the change described in a person is not occurring in the, in the person themselves. It's occurring in the way the body facilitates the human experience and the human will. That's what's changing. Like Spanish, they say, like, I have sadness. Yeah. yeah. 
So, what would be the difference? In, in, in the Rambam's view, if you sin, punishment will arise. And that's what means God is angry. Ultimately, the cause of that punishment is God, right? But in the Kabbalist view, when you sin, the sphere is constrict and God's goodness is withheld, and therefore you suffer. So it's more dynamic, it's more involved, there's more to relate to. But, and therefore the word is less metaphoric. It actually, it really does mean like what we mean when we speak about sadness or anger or joy. But then you have to posit these, this level of being, which is not the things God creates, and it's not God, it's these things called spheros. And so spheros function to God the way our body functions to our soul. Right? That is a very gross oversimplification, but is nonetheless true. Now, I have to say one important thing. What if you actually start thinking of God in terms of the spheros? That's right. And the Zohar, which is a classic Kabbalistic text, after describing the spheros, says very clearly that you are none of these things. And we have a word for this in English. What do you, happens when you start thinking of a person in terms of their body? We call that objectifying the person, right? That's a bad thing to do. The Kabbalistic equivalent is to treat the spheros as if they are the divine. You're objectifying, and that's considered a grave sin, which is why there, a lot of the Kabbalists are you not everyone should study Kabbalah. Okay, questions, then we're going to move on to the next principles. We have a lot to cover. Yeah? Can I ask, what are the type, like, spheros is plural, so what are There are ten of them. There what? There are ten of them. And what are they? You want their actual names? Or, like, what, what are their concepts? Um, this is funny. I'm going to answer you by not answering you, okay? Okay. Um, you studied physics? No. Good. Oh, well, I did in, in high school. Fine. That doesn't count. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay. So you remember hearing this thing called an atom? Yeah. Okay. And you know that an atom has a nucleus, yeah. and it's got the nucleus made of protons and neutrons? Yeah, okay. Can you tell me what protons and neutrons are? I don't remember. <laughs> Why don't you remember? You, you strike me as an intelligent woman, so I doubt it's because, you're, because like, you, you can't understand, you know, you're not I've I'm never too dumb been to, interested in that. You've never been interested in that. Because it, it, it's... Exactly. These are things that... They're just the very concepts you would need to make sense of them are alien. Right? In other words, to understand a proton and a neutron, it's not... It, it, it's a whole different category of types of things. So you have to be interested in physics, yeah. learn a new way of thinking, a new way of classifying things, right? Mm-hmm. And if you don't do that, then it's just like information remember on a test and move on. Uh-huh. Right? Now, um, I could do the same thing with anything, right? If I could, I could ask anybody about any terms in any discipline which are unique to that discipline that the person is just not interested in and they don't have the framework for understanding it. Mm-hmm. Okay? I just use physics because it usually works and I happen to know something about physics. So here's the thing. If you are not a theologian, is it really helpful to start like explaining to you the differences between individual spheres? It's not really going to be any useful. I could do it, and I'll do it right now, but it's going to be misleading. I'll start telling you, this is what Chachm is like, and this is what Bina is like, and this is what Das is like. And, but all I'm going to end up doing is just drawing parallels to human experience. Mm-hmm. And you're not really understanding the spheres. You're just understanding, like, oh, there's things about my human experience. To really understand the spheres, you would have to think about divinity and theology, and, and, and that actually requires some philosophical training. You would need to cover things, for instance. I'll just give you one starting thing you would need to know. 
Notice I threw in there this notion of God's goodness. Okay. This is getting way off of topic, but it's important thing. Okay. Is God good? Yes. You're saying yes. You're like, I don't know. You're saying no. So, the answer to this question from, from, the answer to this question, I'm going to say this. I change it to yes and. No. I'm going, <laughs> the, the answer to this question, I'm going to say this as if it's like absolute, just to make a point, is that God is good. Why is God good? So what is good? What does it mean something is good? Forget God for a moment. What does it mean something is good? You like it? I mean, I don't think any of us would really accept my preferences as a, as a definition for what we mean by good, right? In fact, we can even say, I like something and I recognize it as bad, right? So yeah. clearly, it's not just, you know, preference. So what is good? Well, good, good and bad are like an ethics, moral thing. And okay. Well, I want to avoid the circular argument by, by you're, putting it in the ethical framework is, 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 a, is a good way of putting it, pun intended. When you say something is good ethically, what you mean is it should be, right? In other words, more than just it is. In other words, if it isn't, well, then something should happen to make it be the case. And when you say something is bad, you mean the reverse, that if it is, something should happen to stop it. Right? There's a notion of should, right? which is more than just is. That's kind of very much what goes around this. Right? And that that has some kind of weight or objectivity to it beyond just personal preference. Okay. Um, remember how we defined God in the beginning? Perfect. Perfect. And everything else derives its being from God. So the should and shouldn't it should and should not of reality are derivative of God's being. So he, it's not he decides what's good. That's what gets you to this weird circle. God's like, I decide that this will be a good thing. No. It's that things are good to the degree to which they are in sync with the being of God. That's what gives them legitimacy. And things are bad and to which the degree that they are in tension with God and therefore undermine their own existence. Now, this is like a whole topic in its own right, but you need to have some good handle on this before we even get to spheros, because spheros are understood, like I said, as channeling God, God's goodness into the world in a way that our body channels our will into the world. So if you have no sense of what we mean by this notion of God's goodness, it, it becomes very, very difficult to understand. So what usually ends up happening is people just give you a psychological counterpart. They'll say, oh... Chachma is like, you know, human wisdom and creativity, and it's like God's wisdom and creativity. God doesn't need wisdom and creativity, okay? He doesn't need it. Oh, and chesed is like God's love. I'm like, no, God does not need love. So you have to start thinking about things very differently, and that goes back to my answer about the things. So my long-winded answer is to say, um, I encourage you to learn about it, but if I were to just give you the sphere is this, the sphere is this, the sphere is this, what I would be just doing is breaking down human psychology into 10 parts, that somehow, if understood correctly, could serve as an analogy to understand some of the functionality of the spheres, and that's as far as you get. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the earliest Kabbalistic texts makes this point, that you can only discern functional distinctions in the spheres. You can't have a true conception of what they are, um, because they have to be understood in this context of God's goodness flowing into the world. So, yeah. 
going back to the person who does something good or bad and makes God happy or sad mm-hmm. but the constriction is that really a constriction of God or is that a constriction on our part to then receive the spirit no 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 so, so no that's a constriction of the spirit because once you allow the spirit to be a tangible enough reality to interact with the world there's the possibility of feedback not only can I pick up the cup but let's say the cup is sharp it can prick me right or if the cup is hot it can burn me so, not, so that what this allows for is genuine dynamism in, 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 in religion. Or in other words, the notion that religion is an interactive relationship with God becomes legitimate only in the Kabbalistic perspective. No, when you sin, you do stuff to, to, to God through this model of the spheros. And um, if anyone's ever been in a relationship and you say something that makes the person sad and hurtful and now you want to have a fun time with them, it doesn't work so well because they're constricted and you need to unconstrict them or they need to unconstrict themselves before you can go and have a fun time together. Same thing with God. Whereas if you only use the model of the Rambam, it would say, okay, like as long as you're in a sinful state, you're going to be punished. If you can somehow get yourself out of a sinful state, you're not going to be punished. There's no dynamism or flexibility in God's part. It's not really interactive. So it's a very different model of how you think of religion. And Judaism has both trends, and it even blends them. For instance, Hasidus blends both of these ideas together in very interesting ways. So that can still be true with the statement of like God doesn't need our mitzvahs because the need and the impact are different? Yeah. So the way the Kabbalist would put it, Hasidus gets a little bit weird on this topic, but the way the Kabbalist would put it is the necessity, God's needing the spheros is for the functionality, proper functioning of the spheros, nothing to do with God's intrinsic being. Similar way you'd say like, when I say I need to eat, that's taking into account my inhabiting the body. It's not actually like my soul in essence needs food. My soul will survive just fine in the spiritual realms without eating. But like, I can't function in this world without food. So that would have Kabbalists would explain. Chassidus yeah. gets a little more tricky on this topic. Yeah. Did you say that the Hebrew letters are adjacent to the idea of the spheres? They are. The letters are understood in Kabbalah as the as the since one sphera can do many things the specific effect of the sphera is what's known as the letters um so here's actually a good like here's like a good uh the psychological analogy is good if i am feeling generous towards somebody there are many ways i could act on that i could tell them nice things i could help them out right so there are many different combinations of things that can manifest my feeling of generosity. So the Hebrew letters are the, are the set of ways that the spheres can then deliver the goodness of God into the world. Alright, so you have like a couple levels of Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And then you add on to this the angels and the worlds and the souls and the, the, the sun, the moon, the stars. It gets very complicated if you study Kabbalah, but yeah. But what this does mean from the Kabbalistic viewpoint is that um, we can talk about things like what mood God is in with some actual um, authenticity as long as we realize it's not the mood of God literally. It's the mood of the spheros which are the way in which God's goodness flows into the world. Whereas if you go the Rambam's view it doesn't even make sense to talk about God's mood. It's mean we're like are you in a state that's worthy of punishment or not? Which leads to some very interesting consequences. So have you ever heard of the idea that like this is an auspicious time to pray? Mm-hmm. Why? So the Rambam's view would say it's auspicious time to pray because there's something about human beings on the individual or societal level that makes it conducive to prayer. You'd have to, because right, it's not like anything's happening different with God. 
But if you go Kabbalistically, you say, no, no, the spheres are in a more expansive state. And so, you know, it's like, you know, when your friend is in a good mood, it's easier to ask them for stuff. So, it, it really does change how you view everything in Judaism, these two different models. But what do they both agree upon? Is God himself actually undergoing changes of state and mood? No. God himself does not actually go up, go down, get happy, get sad, right? No. Yeah. It sounds almost like in the Rambam's view, there's like the Torah, full stop, almost. Like there's no God to interact with. There's the Torah and like, there's something like a disconnect, like yes. of an emotional... Yeah, one thing that happens is that while the Rambam's view is easier to understand, the result is that you have a greater sense of God's transcendence. And the Kabbalistic view is more difficult to understand, but it actually legitimizes the sense of God's imminence and, and, and closeness, right? Yeah. Okay. Which is why if you value both aspects of, really, of a connection to God and you see both as relevant to Judaism, you might actually want to figure out how these two ideas can be blended. Mm, okay. See many schools of thought, including Hasidus on the topic. Okay. But remember, the rabbi says this is all easy stuff to understand. All right. The fourth fundamental principle. We're running out of time. The fourth fundamental principle is his primeval existence, i.e., that this unified being exists above all concepts of time. All other existence, by contrast, cannot be considered to be independent of time. There are many texts that bring proof to this concept. The fourth principle is indicated in the verse, the abode of the eternal God. Okay? Then there's a bracketed section, which we'll get to in a moment. So the Rambam's view of the fourth principle is that the concepts of time are not applicable to God. Now, I want to be very honest with you. Um, not everybody agrees with everything in the 13 principles in all of its detail, even though the broad themes are, are, are agreed upon as the fundamentals of Judaism, as I mentioned before. And we just saw that with the notion of God doesn't have a body, right? The Kabbalistic take on that is very different than the Rambam's take on it. There are basically, when I say basically, what does that mean? What? Yeah, yeah. the easiest level, but it's actually much more complicated. There are three views about God's primeval existence, God's being eternal, immortal, beyond time, however you want to put it. There's the Rambam's view, which we're going to explain, and then there's two other views. The Rambam's view is that time does not make sense as a category to, to talk when you're talking about God. That to say, to ask the question, um, when did God do something is as ridiculous as asking the question of who was God's favorite um, friend in third grade. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Or what was God doing when he was busy picking strawberries for his grandmother? Like these are just like, they're word salad. They don't mean anything, right? God is not a being like that. Okay. Now, this has to do with the Rambam's concept that time follows from bodies. So if you have no body... You have no time. So we're going to do a little test here. What was God doing before he created the world? There was no before. There was no before he created the world? Oh, you oh. see there's a problem oh, now. Yeah. We have a problem. We, just, yeah. we, have a, we have a serious problem. What this basically means is that our very way of thinking about things is not going to be applicable to God because we're kind of stuck thinking in time. A more common view is that God, for God, all time is the same. Mm -hmm. This is not the same thing. So I'm gonna give you an example for this, okay? 
Um, you can look at something, you can look at a series of pictures one at a time. And if you look at a series of pictures one at a time and they're similar enough and, they move, and they're changed quickly enough, it feels like there's motion occurring, right? Because you are experiencing the series. But you could take those same pictures and you could arrange them all in front of you and see them all at the same time at once, right? So many people, and this is often what's often taught to people, is have a view that for God, the past, the present, and the future are all the same. But that's not what he, the Rambam is saying, right? The Rambam is saying that for God, these don't mean anything. That past, present, and future only describe us. There's no notion for God, there's no past, present, or future. Okay. So that second view that God kind of like, for God, all time is at once, is, a, is, is something that we can have a little bit more imagination of. Um, but that's not the same as the Rambam's view. Okay. Then there's a third view which is that God is just eternal in the most simple sense, which is that um, God has time like the rest of us. It's just that God has been around forever and God will continue to be around forever. So, in so if I were to ask you in this sense, is there a difference between God remembering the past and expecting the future? In this third view, yes. Mm -hmm. And what differentiates him from us is that for him, he just is always there mm -hmm. and everything else is not always there. In the second view, there would be no difference between God remembering the past um, or predicting the future or experiencing the present. It'll kind of all be like experiencing the present, but at least the concepts of past, present, and future are relevant to him. He just, it's all relegated to present. And then for the Rambam, just the notion of time itself is not applicable. Okay, so there are these three different views. Can you repeat the three Three views. Number one, time is just not relevant when talking about God. Number two, that for God, the past, present, and future are all just the same. So it's like all one big present for God. And the third is that, no, for God, there's difference in the past, the present, and future. But what's different about God than everything else is that God is eternal. So he was always there. God has an infinite past and an infinite future. But he experiences the flow from past through the present to the future like the rest of us. Ramam number one. Ramam number one. And there are, there, there are other opinions that hold two and three. And so you will... Now, what, what they all agree with is that, that time doesn't really constrain God on the basic level that it does for us. Mm -hmm. right? Which, by the way, so I want to just talk on a, on, on a basic level. If God really is immortal, or everything for God is the present, or the concept of time doesn't apply to God, that means a lot of things have to change in the way we think about God. Um, and I'm just use this. Uh, 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 we use time to ascribe value to things. Mm -hmm. For instance, the further away something is in the future or in the past, the less value you will ascribe to it, correct? Yes. Okay. If I am talking to God, I'm gonna have a problem. What's my problem? Have you ever talked to someone where your point of view and their point of view are not the same? Mm -hmm. You have a problem, right? It's hard to communicate. In your point of view, that which is closer to the present is a big deal and needs to be addressed. That which is further from the present is less of a big deal and does not need to be addressed. Yes? And it's with that sense of urgency you speak to God. If you would like to know what this would be like for God, if you want to make it anthropomorphized a little bit, 
think about being an adult and have a child complain that they need the candy now. They can't have the candy in 10 minutes because they need it now. And you're just like, this is annoying because it makes no difference whether you have it now or in 10 minutes, right? Now expand that to an infinite degree. Like my life right now, what's happening to me? And God's like, and what's happening to you is somehow more fundamentally significant than what happened to like all the people that lived 3,000 years ago or the people that lived in 10,000 years. So you see like there's like this. Yeah, but like, I, like the same way you would treat a child in the way that like I understand where you're coming from because you're free when Hashem had that same. Oh, that would depend. Definitely. That would depend. Maybe, maybe not. And what? Well, we don't always have that difference to children. Not necessarily because we're annoyed, just because we think they're wrong. The candy doesn't. It really doesn't. In fact, I will tell you something that sometimes parents do. Is when they see the child that gets very, very insistent on something, they will actually delay it. Hmm. This has to be done carefully and judiciously, but why do that? It's important to, it's important to teach children how to ascribe appropriate value to things. Now, you have to do that in a way that they're going to experience the message properly. It doesn't mean they like it when they're going through it. Yeah. So maybe sometimes when you're like, I need this right now, that might itself be a reason for God to say no. But if, you got, if you're, like, you're like, this would definitely make my life more pleasant, but I understand that fundamentally it doesn't really carry great significance because the same way like I went without it five years ago and I'm okay with the fact that five years ago I didn't have it, I really ultimately recognize I should be okay if I don't have it now. Then I was like, okay, I mean, if you're not describing that much value to it, what's the harm in giving it to you? It really messes with you. You start to think that God is, like, and that's just God being eternal. Now you put God to like everything is the present or God is only on time. So this notion of like in prayer and the kind of sense of like, of, 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 of putting yourself in perspective before you like utter something to God, it's very humbling. It's very, uh, it's just one consequence of this idea. Now, the reverse is also true. Maybe things that are very distant from us carry a lot more significance than we think just because... So let me ask you a question. What is a greater... De- what, is a, what, what is a more important thing? The destruction of the temple? I'm going to be politically correct now, okay? Very politically correct. I apologize. What's a bigger deal? The destruction of the temple or the Holocaust? See how I just... Just stepped into the mud right there, right? But at least I did it knowingly. <laughs> now, there's clearly a gut level where we would put it at the Holocaust, right? Why? Well, the, the killing. But here's the thing. The killing, the killing is actually not really the case. Because, like, if we start, like, opening up the, the histories of reading, like, what happened during the Chalmanitsky uprisings or what happened during the Roman or Babylonian or Syrian sieges of ancient Israel, um, it becomes like a which is more barbaric kind of thing. Yeah, it's like, and the thing, it has to do with it because it, 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 there's the barbarism, but there's also the immediacy of it. There's the fact that it's something that we, you know, it's not in our lifetime, but it's within a society as we relate to as part of our society. Okay, right? And what happens over time, by the way? Less. less and less and less. Like, there's no way I could have said this 30 years ago. Like, there would have been an uproar. Things are wrong. Okay. Um, did the... Rabbis and prophets institute a day of mourning for all time until the temple is rebuilt. Mm-hmm. Um, was there any universal consensus that, that should be done because of the Holocaust? 
There's some disputes about this, and even if there is, it's not given the same level of, of significance and priority by the rabbinic establishment. Why is that? There's a sense that, okay, maybe in some... Kind of the, once, you, once you take time away from the issue and you think in terms of what, from God's point of view, truly makes something significant or not significant, maybe these two things are really... Yeah. Maybe, in fact... One thing is just a symptom of the other, and the real, tra- the, 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 real, the real tragedy you see in the Holocaust is just one facet of, what, of the tragedy that occurred in the temple. And, right? like, you see, like, once you take time out of it, everything becomes evaluated very differently. Okay? The idea of a small sin becomes a little bit of a meaningless point. So I just sin a little bit, and then I'll go back to like, being like, pious. It doesn't really make a lot of sense anymore, because the time is not a factor to measure the significance of things. Repentance happens after sin. So, if, if, if time is not relevant in how God is placing value on things, right? So, if God thinks the sin is bad, is it less bad because you're only, you're only in a state of sin for 10 seconds? No. So, well, it's only that way because we think of things in terms of time. But every, if every single moment you're repeating it, no matter how many increments, how small, how tiny the increments are, so you're doing it and doing it and doing it. Empty. No, if you sin, right, and sinning is bad from God's point of view, yes? Whatever is bad about it, it's not always bad from our point of view. I think we should be honest about that. People are fine with sinning. Just not some of the sins we don't like, but a lot of the sins we do. Yeah. We have evil inclinations. We enjoy sinning. Um, if, if, the, if the sin is bad from God's point of view, okay, is the duration of time that you are in a state of sin make it worse? Well, if God, well so if God does, if, if the whole notion of time being something that's used to increase or decrease the value of things is not true for God. But I feel like I totally agree with Batya with like, it's heat, like heat. We talk to children imagining like we have the mental capacity to imagine what they're imagining and God has the omniscient ability to do that for us so like he knows that we're doing it over and over again so like that for him then he knows it's worse for it, he he can imagine that it's worse than what we're doing does that make that didn't make any well, no that makes sense it does make sense but yeah. but it, it, it does make sense except except the issue is What's bad about the sin is coming from his perspective, not our perspective. And so, like, the fact that you think it's worse, it's like, I'll give you an example. Like, a kid thinks it's bad to, to a, a, a kid thinks it's bad to take someone else's candy. Why does a kid think it's bad to take someone else's candy? Uh, no, children are not like that. I have little kids, they're not like that. Why do you think it's bad to take someone else's candy? They don't want someone what? to take their candy? No, I'm t- I, there's another kid and they have candy and... Because they don't, they, they want someone to take their candy. Right. So that's part of it. Kids do have this ability to feel like, well, you know, I don't want someone to do it to me. So it's like, well, I'm to someone else. That's part of it. Also, what happens when they take someone else's candy? How does, how, does, how does the environment around them react to that? Poorly. Poorly, yeah. It's, it's not pleasant. Right? So there's a combination of I wouldn't want it to happen to me, resting on a lot of, like, negative energy directed at me if I did it. Gives you the feeling like this. Now, you still want to do it, but it's also great. Why is it wrong to take someone else's candy? Let's say everyone was okay with you just stealing something. 
Everyone's like, yeah, yes, go ahead, steal. We don't, we, on the contrary, we will give you like lots of accolades and raise you up and make you a, you know, a pillar of society and, you know, because you steal. And no one, and we're actually going to, and, 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 you, and you will be able to steal this way. No one will steal back from you. So it's a one-way street. You can get away with it and we'll lodge you for it. Does now it make it okay? That makes it good. Now it makes it proper to steal? No, there's something unjust about stealing. There's something, in, there's something that violates virtue and nobility that, again, is stealing, right? Okay, does the child have any sense of that? The three-year-old, the four-year-old, five-year-old? They don't have any sense of that at all. So what they think the problem is, isn't the problem. So if you say, oh, it's bad to sin because of X, Y, and Z. No, no, what's bad about sin is only really appreciable from God, the, the, the divine perspective. But now you mixing time into it is corrupting the divine perspective. So I agree that for, if we see sin as bad, it definitely feels worse the longer it goes on. But if we're really going to accept what is bad about sin as what's really bad about sin, then you can no longer use time to rationalize what's not just a big deal. And then conversely, the same thing is with mitzvahs. If the real value of mitzvahs is stemming from a divine perspective, the fact that a mitzvah is a momentary thing doesn't in any way decrease its value. Okay, now I'm going to use a, a very harsh but important example to illustrate the point. Many of us have heard the idea that in Judaism, um, life trumps everything, yes? Always do things to save life? Okay, this is not true. One of the 613 commandments is Kiddush Hashem. Kiddush means sanctifying the name which has many levels to it. The primary method of Kiddush Hashem is martyrdom. It is a positive commandment to die. Now, here's the thing about dying. How many times do you get to this mitzvah? How long does it last? Hopefully not that long. You think, well, what's the value in that? Like, what's the value in dying for God? That's it. You did it. You can't do anything else after that, right? And so there's like a kind of like, like that doesn't seem right. I want to like keep, I want to like keep doing more and like doing more good. And, but apparently, sometimes a momentary thing has enough value that even if nothing, there's consequences, nothing follows, right? Um, and this is an idea in Judaism. Um, we even see this in the Torah that, again, an unpleasant thing. Um, there were two um, very holy men, Nodav and Avihu, who died the day that the Mishkan, the Tabernacle, and the Temple is inaugurated. Okay. Now, there are many layers to why they died. I'm only bringing up the part that's relevant to this discussion. When they died, they were the sons of Aaron, the high priest. So Moshe, who is his brother, comes to Aaron and says, these were sinners, they deserved to die. You know, what, what, did, what, did anyone know what he said to them? He said, this is what God told me, that I will be sanctified by by those who honor me. In other words, God's saying, yeah, in order for the temple to be inaugurated, we're going to need a righteous man to die. And Moshe thought, I was actually, and the commentators based on the Talmud says, Moshe thought, I actually thought it was going to be you and me, Aaron. But it turns out that in some perspective, your sons were greater than us. And they were the martyrs that God wanted to inaugurate the temple. Now, if you're going to ask me, why does God need two righteous men to die to inaugurate the temple? And the answer to that is, I have no idea. And it seems weird, right? But the minute you remove time from your calculus of, what, of how to ascribe value to things, everything changes. Okay? 
something that lasts a long time might be relatively meaningless, and something that lasts a moment might be internally eternally significant. So this is this, this is a, this is a it's not just a philosophically challenging principle for the, for the you know metaphysicians amongst us. This actually has real ramifications in how we think about our life. You know, what is important, what is not important, cannot be evaluated through time. If we're going to adopt the divine perspective. Okay, now we have the bracketed section. Now, the bracketed section, if you look in the footnote 80, is from a um, Rav Kapach's text. Rav Kapach was a Yemenite rabbi. Um, Yemen um, is, uh, has had a long ancient Jewish community going back all the way to First Temple times. Um, the Yemenite community has different practices and customs, so they are not Sephardic, they are not Ashkenazic. Um, and a large there's actually different communities in the Yemenite community, but many of the Yemenite communities um, became followers of the Ramam of Maimonides and were very careful to preserve his writings. And so some of the more authentic versions of the text of the Rambam's writings are found in the manuscripts of the Yemenite community. Okay? And in this manuscript, there's a later edition that the Rambam wrote on the margins, right? So you have your, he wrote, he, he wrote it. He wrote his commentary, where the 13 principles are, and at some later point in his life, he, on his own copy, of his own handwritten copy, wrote a note in his margins, and that was preserved in the Yemenite community, and that's where this section is taken from. Okay. So what we're reading now was written, um, based on mention of a later work, was written decades later from the text that we're reading. Know that one of the great fundamentals of the Torah of Moshe is that our world is a new entity created and formed by God out of absolute nothingness. Okay, you've heard this idea God created the world out of nothing? What does that mean? He took some nothing and he's like, it's a world. That's right. That's right, that's what it means. Okay. That's right. The, so in other words, God didn't turn anything into the world. Now, we have no idea what that means, really. We just know what it's negating. Because anytime something comes into being, as far as we're concerned, what is happening? There was something that we is now being changed to be something other than what it used to be. That's not what God did to bring the world into being. Now, why is that so important? Like, who cares? God, now, at the end of the day, what does it matter whether or not God turns some primordial stuff into the universe or poof, the universe just comes into being? Either way, God is the cause, right? Otherwise, God is the one bringing it into being. Why does it really matter? So there's different answers to this question. Hasidus has its own set of answers. We're going to see what the Rambam says. One of the reasons I put so much emphasis on the negation of the concept of the world existing before time, as some philosophers maintain, is because the creation of the world from nothingness proves God's existence absolutely as explained in the God of the Perplexed. The idea being is like this. If the world, if the world comes into being out of something that used to be before the world, that does not necessarily happen necessitate a God who's beyond the world. It allows for it, but it doesn't necessitate it. You could take a materialistic view and say that the world is in some sense its own God. The God is some kind of this like being that morphs into different states and we're currently experiencing. There's different views like this. 
But if you say that the, the, there, nothing turned into the world and now it's here, that necessitates something other than the world, outside the world, transcendent of the world, which is the creator. And since Judaism is very insistent, and we're going to see this in principle five, on the worship of a transcendent God, a God who is not part of the world, if you understand this notion of creation, you end up with a Jewish notion of God automatically. Whereas if you try to get at God without creation, you run into the problem that it's much more difficult to, ne- to be absolutely clear that God is something other than the world, outside the world, beyond the world. Okay. Um, let's put this in very practical terms. Okay. This, is, this is getting to principle five a little bit. Are you allowed to worship the circle of life? You know, the, the, the interconnectedness of the ecosystem. Is that something we as Jews are allowed to worship? Why not? Okay, but why isn't that God? Is that that interconnected system the thing that everything depends on and keeps everything together and brings the things into existence? It's no more God than a person, then, because it's no, because a person, no, because 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 that because a person is is subsumed within that larger system. A person, right? But that seems to be a product of God, like Mm -hmm. not God. Why? Because you're you're taking for granted a sense of God, which is outside whatever it is you're you're thinking of, beyond whatever you're thinking of. You're not, you're not entertaining the notion that maybe we could just make God the totality of everything, God the system of everything, God the structure of everything. This actually is a very popular idea in the ancient world. It's a popular idea now. It takes on different forms. Okay? So the thing is, what, if you say that the world that exists now is somehow an altered state of something that existed before, which is an altered state of something that existed before, such that it existed eternally in some form or fashion, that would allow or justify in some way a worship of nature, a worship of the natural order, a worship of the structure of existence. And that's not what we mean by God. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. By the way, just one, one, one point. This issue was the big... The, the big reason for anti-Semitism in the ancient world was this. And we're gonna, I'm, we'll talk about it more when we get to the fifth principle because I'm, I'm tying this into the fifth principle. The idea that the God that we worship is outside the structure of reality that we're familiar with. Uh-huh. Everybody else, when they call, worship something as a God, what were they worshiping? Something. A, a thing. Something in the world, yeah. right? Now, the deeper people understood them as the structures and patterns of reality rather than the actual physical thing. Okay, but, yeah. And that's the division between, you know, Judaism and paganism. And and, and that's, and so, yes, you can have a notion of God without this notion of creation, but you don't get to this absoluteness of this, you know, this transcendent God that we have in Judaism and and what that's all about necessarily without creation. So if you start, and that's actually the Torah starts, the Torah starts, establishes a very basic principle. Voracious barley came from my birth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there's the stuff of reality, and then there's God, and they shall not be conflated ever. Like, that's the starting point. And in the ancient world, everyone's like, oh, I don't like that idea. 
I really don't like that. People still don't like it. Yeah. I'm trying to understand how, um, like, a theory of causation. Is it that, like, a theory of causation within, like, Ramon's philosophy is, like, totally, like, extricated from, like, from time? With chronology? Correct, so correct, that, like, correct, correct, correct. So that, like, causation, then would it be accurate to say that causation, like, the, the creation of the world coexists with nothingness? The, 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 uh, uh, this is hard to do. I'll use it with space. Okay, let's say I'm God, which, you know, as this arrogant, self-absorbed person, I like to think sometimes. And let's say I create this table, poof, out of nothing. Okay? The table is limited from here to here, right? That's a limitation of the table. There is no table beyond this point. There is no table beyond this point, right? So this is a, there's a there's table... And this is not table, right? But the not table is only meaningful in the sense that I created a table that is a certain size. Mm -hmm. Prior to my creation of the table, it's not meaningful to think of the space as not the table, mm -hmm. right? Okay, so, bef so not before. In the absence of God having created a world, there is God. Okay, God creates a world, so now there's the world, and there is God. So there is that which is not the world and there is that which is not God. The world, interestingly, has a structure of today and tomorrow. I'm using this very specifically. And it has a structure of today and yesterday. Every today has a tomorrow and every today has a... No, actually God created a world where there's one day that has a tomorrow but does not have a... Every molecule of this table has an adjacent molecule to its left and right except for the ones at the edge. So God created one day of all the days that he created which does not have a yesterday. Okay. But once you understand that then you understand that the causal creation of the world is not the, the today is not flowing causally from the yesterday because then how did that, that day that doesn't have a yesterday come into being? So that day is illustrative. I experience the world as if today follows from yesterday, right? But if today's always have to follow from yesterday's, you would have to have yesterday's all the way back. If you have a today without a yesterday, then that means what causes a today to come into existence is not the yesterday. Or not. What? Um, Hashem can start from one. No, because the thing is that if you're, if you're talking about he's going back to the, this is why he puts this in the context of time. It's not Hashem is starting, right? There's no notion of starting. The question is, does today depend on yesterday? Once you have a today without a yesterday, what does that show you? It doesn't. It doesn't. So what does today depend on? The will of God. Okay, so all the todays depend on the will of God. God created todays that are structurally adjacent one to the other such that every today has a yesterday before it and a tomorrow after it. And once you start thinking like that, then like, God is really beyond the reality. And therefore, we should never ever equate God with anything in reality or anything in reality with God. What and this, tomorrow? what? What about tomorrow? So that's actually, the Raman discusses this and says that in our tradition, we do not have a, a tradition that God, God created the world such that there is a today without a tomorrow. In other words, that while the world is limited in the, in the past, there is nothing in our tradition that necessitates it being limited in the future. Does that necessitate it to be? 
The Rama makes arguments why he thinks it's not that way, and there are there are Talmudic teachings which could be interpreted to the contrary. Um, but it's 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 not it's not a fundamental thing in our tradition, one way or the other. Okay. So, the, the, I really do want to emphasize like this these principles. They can be dealt with as like just pure like abstract metaphysics, but I want you to see how like the degree to which a person can take them seriously and grasp them really does change how we have to like relate to reality differently, relate to religion differently. Um, and this goes back to what I was talking about, like this notion there's a religious mindset which is different than a secular mindset, different than a pagan mindset. It's not just whether I'm keeping Shabbos or whether I'm not keeping Shabbos. Again, those things are extremely important. Okay. Um, tomorrow we will move on to the fifth principle, which in some sense is the culmination of everything, which is about the worship of God and the prohibition of worshiping anything else, which is gonna kind of tie all of this. And that's what I've been kind of bringing out as we're going through these principles, but we're gonna talk about that, and we're also gonna talk about using intermediaries to worship God, which is a big no-no. No, no using intermediaries to worship God. Good? Yep, thank you. Thank you. Does that second way of hearing Hashem Outside of time, is that kind of like the thing of motion being an illusion and we're trapped in? No, the Rambam doesn't think motion is an illusion. No. The, the Rambam is quite adamant that motion isn't an illusion. If motion would be an illusion, you would have serious theological problems. I'm not going to tell you that nobody in Jewish theology ever has not subscribed to that idea, but it's very outside the mainstream. I'll give you a very simple example, okay? Um, for motion to be an illusion, then, 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 then time would have to be an illusion. Yes? Okay. If time is an illusion, how do you feel the commandment of giving a bris on the eighth day but not prior to the eighth day? Time is not an illusion. What you end up having to do is to say the structure of halacha is illusory. And once you say the structure of halacha is illusory, well, now you have a bigger problem, right? Which is, okay, so... So the divine will expressed to us is illusory? Like, like at, at what point do you stop with that? Right. So it, it, it's different to say that what we are experiencing is compromised and some of the conclusions we draw are incorrect. But to say that something is just entirely illusory in reality ends up undermining the entire religious thing, religious project. Words, it, it, I, I can say that just use an example, like, like going back to physics. Like I can say that there's one level in which this is solid, and there's another level in which I can understand this is actually quite empty, and there's another level which I can understand this um, as not a, a thing, but a mathematical um, object. Like there's a lot of ways that are reasonable ways of looking at them, and the fact that like as a person who hasn't studied physics, I might just look at it one way and think that's the end all and be all. I'm mistaken. But that doesn't mean the way I'm seeing it is an illusion, right? Like, it's really annoys me. Sometimes there's, like, holier than thou of people who study science. Like, it might appear to you this is solid, but really it's empty. It's like, no, 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 no. It, it really is solid. You're just, you're, you're, you're misleading people. Because solid means something. It means that when I try to move my hand through it, it yeah. doesn't go through it. Yeah. Now, it is true, your understanding of solidity is maybe overly simplistic. And if you had a more profound understanding, you'd understand that, Okay, it doesn't mean that there's stuff all the way through. That's not what you need to create. Okay. So you can say that our understanding of motion, our understanding of time is maybe incomplete. And the conclusions we draw about it may be mistaken, but to just say that the phenomenon itself is an illusion, again, undermines all the way back to, well, what does it mean that God commanded us to do mitzvahs? 
Yeah. So okay, so about time. So why is it? Why prolong Shabbos? Why is it like? Oh, you should like keep Shabbos a couple more minutes. That's nice. If time doesn't it's matter nice. to God. It's not nice. It's not nice. I'm wrong about that. Yeah, it's not nice. It's a commandment. But why is it? I don't know. So not God. It's just a commandment. People know It is a commandment to add on to Shabbos. So why pray three? Like why? Like how do these things? Like should you pray? Should you do every mitzvah as quickly as possible to do more mitzvahs? If the time that you take to do the mitzvah is not valuable to God, but it's the quantity. I of will. Mitzvahs? I will. No, you have to look at the Torah. In other words, you couldn't a priori make that decision. I'll give you an interesting example. If there is something that is impure in the temple, okay, and you need to get rid of it, you have two options. Option number one is you could just grab it and take it out of the temple. Option two is you could find a utensil which cannot convey impurity and use that. And then you won't be impure. And then you're right. So now what should we do? Should we get it out of the temple as quickly as possible, but increase the amount of impure things? Or should we make sure not to increase the amount of impure things, even though it will take it longer to get out of the temple? What's the answer? That's a dispute in the Torah. But you wouldn't a priori decide what God wills. You would have to look as we have a tradition, we have reasons from the Torah itself. Um, so should a mitzvah be done quickly or slowly? I mean, there's not necessarily an automatic simple answer to these things. Um, and in, a, in other words, like when you ask, it's not nice to keep Shabbos going. It's a commandment. I didn't know that. Um, it's actually a requirement. You have to accept Shabbos slightly, at minimum, slightly before the sun sets. Oh, sure. And, and you, not as a safeguard. No. And you must continue to observe Shabbos after the three stars come out for some amount of time. Okay. That's so I didn't of, know that. Yeah, after. That, that, yeah okay. both of them. It's not, yeah, it's not a safeguard thing. Okay. Um, there's discussion. Is it biblical? Is it rabbinic? What about holidays? Is that There's a whole discussion on it. Um, I feel... <laughs> Um, how much time should the high priest spend in the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur? Not long. Not long? Yeah. Why not? In case he acts only and makes something impure or anything? No. No. Well, there, there's a practical reason and there's a more metaphysical reason. The practical reason is because the longer he's there, there's more concern that maybe he died because an unworthy high priest dies. And that just doesn't look good. But the other thing is that it actually, in some of it, was inappropriate. The, the, the high priest should go in, do the rituals, okay. and get out. Okay. It's not his place. He doesn't belong there. On the other hand, when it comes to shul, to the synagogue, should you spend as much time as you can in so the synagogue? Like arrive early. Arrive early, leave late. Right. So, okay. so, right. so there are different types of spaces that God expects us to relate to different ways in time, right? Oh, they matter. Yeah. You can't, you, you, you can't just decide because, oh, this is... And sometimes we have analogies to help us understand that and make it reasonable. Sometimes we don't. It, 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 it's not a foregone conclusion that just because something is good we should spend more time on it. Okay. Um, and the opposite. Or less time to do more. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and by the way, sometimes in, 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 in the Torah itself there's, there's differing opinions. Sometimes God has more than one view on the subject. Really? <laughs> yes. That's why we have... That's the... That's the um, a wise... If you think about this, a wise person is someone who's able to see more than one side of an issue, right? Yes. Is God wise? Yes. So should God be able to see more than one side of an issue? So if that's the case, would it make sense that the sages who are um, guided by the wisdom of God would not always agree on things? Okay. Does that mean everything's open-ended? And is a wise person someone who adopts all points of view no matter how ridiculous they are? Also, no. Right. Thank you. Right. Yeah. So. Okay.
I said that that's what the Kabbalists say. Kabbalists, right? Kabbalists. Say. But he needs, but he needs it for the sake of the spheres operating properly. Correct. Okay. But he doesn't need that. We need that. That is a good point. So why do you say that he needs it? If I were to tell my wife, I don't need you to treat me nice. Right? I mean, it's true. If you, if you don't treat me nicely, I'll, 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 I'll be hurt and I'll be closed off um, and the quality of our marriage will suffer. Um, but seeing as how I'm a mature, autonomous adult, like I can live a fulfilled, meaningful life in other avenues of my life. And so like, I, I'm not threatened by the fact that you don't treat me nicely. Um, but there's a you know, but but I can't, you know, have this warm relationship if you if you treat me like garbage. Right? I could say that. Um, so now it becomes a semantics game. Like, do I need her to treat me nicely? Do I not need her to treat me nicely? You see what I'm saying? It becomes and it becomes like a little. So the same thing. Like like is God's being under threat? No, but in as much as there's value God ascribes to connecting to us through the spheres, and that does depend on our cooperation, so the spheres are able to convey God's goodness in the most way possible, in that sense, you could say he needs us. And then it becomes a semantic. You want to call that a need, you don't want to call that a need, at which point I say, like, who cares what you call it? As long as you understand what we mean, it's fine. But you are retaining the possibility there, and this is what the Catholics point out, of, like, there is some sense in which God can be above and beyond that issue as well. And that's where Chassidus starts getting poking holes in, about that issue. Is that really true that God could, so to speak, like, no, is it really true that God could say, like, you know, if you don't want to have this connection, like, it's, you know, sad for you. I guess it's sad for me, but I'll move on in life and I can, I can continue to be myself. Does God have a being to himself that's absent the Jewish people? And like that, that's, a, that's a more of a Hasidic idea. Does that really find so explicitly in Kabbalah? Like that. What? Jews and Jews and God are all one. That doesn't come from Zohar? No. The Zohar says there are three levels or knots that are tied to each other. The Jews, and each one has hidden and revealed, meaning each one has two layers to them, a hidden and revealed layer. The Jews to the Torah and the Torah to God. So there is that. There's another statement in the Zohar which is that God is the Torah. No, sorry. The Torah is God, and his presence is the Jewish people. In, in Aramaic, Araisa da Kuchubrichel, and Shechinte da Knesset Yisrael. And it is paraphrased in Chassidus as God, the Jewish people, and the Torah all one. But that actual formulation, to my knowledge, only shows up in Chassidus. And if you look at the footnotes, it always says, see the Zohar. Uh-huh. And whenever it says see, that's because it's not a direct quote. Yeah, it's okay. that the idea could be read there, but it is not literally said there. So that is a Hasidic understanding of Kabbalistic passages. But there are Kabbalists who don't understand it that way, and arguably many Kabbalists prior to Chassidus did not see them that way. Yes. The, the notion that there's some kind of in, in, essential intrinsic bond between the Jewish people and God, um, that goes to the core of God's being, is a Hasidic idea. It does not exist outside the Hasidic, you know, as if, you know, Kabbalists do not discuss that idea. In Kabbalists, everything is, okay, God has a will which is fulfilled through the spheros and the Jewish people play an integral role in that. Now we have a start our discussion. 
but the notion that there's some sign of like God being God somehow in, in, inherently mis- involves the Jewish people mm-hmm. and thus from there it follows inherently requires there to be Judaism mm-hmm. that you know and then the spheres are like subordinated to that that's a whole different that's mm-hmm. which is harder more interesting more radical but definitely a harder idea alright we'll hold it here tomorrow we'll learn about worshiping God no intermediaries no worshiping God through intermediaries